We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Stop Talk Radio, the world for people who think. Welcome to Soft Talk Radio. I'm Joe Quinn, and my co-host this week is Nal Bradley. Hello, everyone. Uh, this week, we are talking with Stephen Browdy. Stephen is Emeritus Professor of Philosophy and former Chair of, philosophy, of the Philosophy Department at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. He is past President of the Parapsychological Association and Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Scientific Exploration. He is a lifelong student of psychic phenomenon, and has written extensively on the central issues in parapsychology, authoring over 60 philosophical essays along with five books, uh, among which are Immortal Remains, The Evidence of Life After Death, ESP and Psychokinesis, A Philosophical Examination, and The Goatleaf Lady and Other Parapsychological Investigations. Stephen's sixth book to appear this summer, 2014, is titled Crimes of Reason. Oh, and he's also an accomplished jazz pianist and composer. Also with us this week, uh, just to add into the mix, is um, Professor Arkadio Jacek. Good to me. Uh, Ark is Professor Emeritus of Wrocław University. Wrocław. Wrocław University. That's a Polish term. Give me a break. Wrocław <laughs> University and former head of the Department of Nonlinear Dynamics and Complex Systems. He is co-author of the book Riemannian Geometry, Fiber Bundles, Calusic Klein Theories, and all that. And the author of Quantum Fractals, From Heisenberg's Uncertainty to Barnsley's Fractality. Ark has also published over 80 papers that have appeared in many professional journals, and he is also a member of the editorial board of several international scientific research organizations. Uh, there's one in particular, the Journal of Consciousness Exploration and Research, which is perhaps most relevant to today's topic. Uh, also with us, our third guest, I suppose, uh, is Laura Knight-Yachik. Laura is a historian and parapsychological researcher in her own right. She is the author of 15 books, including two book series, The Secret History of the World and The Wave. So with that lineup, I think we're in for a pretty interesting discussion. So welcome, Stephen, Laura, and Ark. Thank you very Hi. much. Hello. Um, Stephen. Yes. I was going to jump right in, and uh, I mean, we can get back to the basics if we need to after this, but I was going to jump right in and ask you a question about, about synchronicity. Because um, well, you, you talk about this in, in, in your books in relation to psychokinesis, or yes. that is the influence. Officially, it's, psychokinesis is the influencing uh, of a physical system without physical interaction. Um, in, in your latest book, The Goldleaf Lady and Other Parapsychological Investigations, you say that if genuinely non-random meaningful coincidences, i.e. synchronicity, occur, this would be best explained in terms of a refined, extensive, and potentially very intimidating form of large-scale psychokinesis. Yes. Um, and I was just wondering if you could explain what you mean by, 
by that and by large-scale psychokinesis. Well, first, I commend you for getting into one of the heavier issues right from the start. Um, <laughs> that's, what I, that's why I said we can go back to basics if we need to afterwards, but, you know. <laughs> This is, wow, where to begin with this? Part of the problem is that the way Jung and many others talk about synchronicity is that synchronicity is a fundamental operating principle of nature, that nature somehow manages to organize um, meaningfully similar events um, and that these are not just fortuitous uh, coincidences that we simply impose meaning on. The problem with that, and this is really just the the quick Reader's Digest version of the argument, um, the problem with that is that it requires uh, the assumption that things are intrinsically either similar or dissimilar, uh, so that nature can somehow pick them out. Um, and mm-hmm. what I would say, what I would say is that no two things are intrinsically similar or, or dissimilar. Um, if you need a mathematical example, in mathematics, for example, in geometry, um, we talk usually about congruence rather than similarity of geometric figures. But you could take an isosceles triangle, a right triangle, um, any number of other, a square and a circle. And if I asked you, if I picked out one of those objects and I said, um, which of these other objects is this first object similar to? You shouldn't know how to answer that unless there's some prior agreement about what criteria are relevant. So things are not similar or dissimilar simpliciter or just by themselves. Similarity always requires certain criteria for there to be a rule of projection for mapping one thing onto another. And unless you're willing to posit God as the agent behind the scenes, organize, you know, some agent with criteria of some sort, um, manipulating mm-hmm. events, and most proponents of synchronicity don't want to go to that step. Um, the only way I think of explaining why events fall out in genuinely meaningful clusters and aren't fortuitous is that somehow we're, we're arranging things along lines that mean something to us. So large-scale psychokinesis would be simply the ordering of events into meaningful sequences. You mean by an individual? Does, does that make any sense? Yeah. Do you mean by an individual? Yes. So uh, okay. I'll give you an example. I'll give you an example. There was a, a woman a number of years ago, I will not mention her name, who insisted that um, nature, who is a fan of synchronicity, and insisted that nature um, was a punster, that um, synchronistic events would always um, model puns in English. And the fact is, this woman was a punster. She loved puns. And Mm -hmm. she had a gift for, um, let's say, imposing or finding um, those kinds of similarities between events. Hmm. And it's not clear whether she arranged those herself or just imposed the patterns on them. But if, if there's genuinely meaningful coincidence in nature if these aren't just things onto which we simply project um, certain uh, meanings, then the option, I think, is to suppose that somehow we order events ourselves. Well, let me, let me uh, jump in here because I was uh, being engaged in what I'm engaged in. <laughs> Who knows what it is? Um, for most of my life, I've had some really unusual experiences. And one of the... Uh, uh, 
one of the most troubling was, you know, kind of a psychokinetic ability where, you know, I could destroy objects, break objects, uh, Mm -hmm. or it it appeared that way. Uh, And it would usually be associated with me being upset in some manner. And I always found that there was some sort of uh, some sort of a message in it, you know, that uh, when this or that happened, it was... Uh, for example, the, the the most recent event was we had a, a cast iron pan, and uh, apparently, without going into a lot of detail, it seems that I I broke this cast iron pan. It was like a flat griddle, didn't have sides on it, but the handle broke off. And I thought about it for several days, and I thought, well, you know, my subconscious is telling me I need to get a handle on things, you know, <laughs> that, that that sort of thing. But uh, more often than not, it's it's that kind of thing where, you know, I just consider that I'm sending a message to myself that somehow I am engaged in this dynamic. It's not that something out there is doing it to me. Um, right. It's it's that somehow I'm I'm involved in it. So is well, that that's, more or less what you mean? Well, I'd say that's on the road to it. It's a slightly um, smaller scale version of uh, right. what I'm talking about. So, right, right. Yeah, so I think you're on the right track there. Um, another example would be the case of the gold leaf lady. Uh, this oh, is yeah, a woman that was fascinating. In, this is a woman in Florida whose body would uh, break out spontaneously and instantaneously in a kind of golden foil that turned out to be brass. Now, what's important about this case is that, uh, apart from the fact that magicians couldn't duplicate it, um, right. This is a woman whose all of whose psychic abilities, and they were considerable and, and varied, um, didn't occur until her second and current marriage, a, a pretty abusive uh-huh. relationship overall. And just like poltergeist victims, uh, who are usually teenagers, well, you know, right. the, the, let me just back up for listeners who may have Or noticed. frustrated women. Uh, well... Just as teenagers have lots of unresolved emotional issues which might get expressed in poltergeist-like ways, of course, marriage is also a fertile ground for um, emotional troubles, as I can personally attest. So um, it's not surprising that something like this might happen in Katie the Gold Leaf Lady's life, too. And in fact, for a while, before the the Gold Leaf started, she was having poltergeist-like happenings. Uh, Tables Uh were moving, objects were appearing and disappearing, and one day a carving set appeared out of nowhere. And her husband said to her, what good is it if it isn't money? And then two days later, her body started to break out in what looks like golden foil, but turns out to be brass. So if you want my pop psychological analysis of this, it would be that symbolically it satisfies Katie's demand for something valuable, but she doesn't have to really bear the responsibility of being the goose that laid the golden egg. And um, perhaps even more important, it's a way of not of expressing her rage against her husband, which I think is considerable, because she was not giving him what he really wanted. He wanted something valuable, and she was giving him fool's gold. So she was, in effect, giving him the psychic finger. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Stephen, I, I searched online, and I actually found some video footage of this, this woman, Katie, Yes. And, I mean, just to clarify for our listeners, this stuff really is coming out from inside of her. Well, well it's wait. amazing. Well, I, I, I have don't to know that. We, she don't, is or, yeah, we don't know that because it appears sometimes on her clothing and on objects in her vicinity. And 
I think actually she'd have to have, if, if these are the images that I think you're looking at, she'd have to have lethal amounts of copper and zinc in her system uh, for, mm-hmm. in order to be sweating it. So th- about that case, uh, the real question as far as I'm concerned is whether it should be regarded as a materialization where something is just being created de novo out of nothing or whether it's what's often known as an apport, where an object disappears from one location and reappears uh, somewhere else. And I tried to make some progress determining that, uh, having some analytical chemists uh, analyze about 30 different samples of Katie's foil, and then we were going to do an a equally detailed analysis of samples of brass leafing taken from art supply stores in Maryland, where I lived at the time, and also from Florida, where Katie lived. Um, but various events intervened. And as you can probably imagine anyway, academic chemists have only so much time to spend on these kinds of things if they're willing to do it at all. So that's an analysis that hasn't been completed. Well, still, I I watched one video, and is this the only one who was doing this, or was there another one? Was there? As far as I know, this was just Katie. Right. And and what the one I watched was it was where this gold foil or a gold appearing foil was uh, exuding from like around the eyes or the creases above Uh, her eyes. Well, that's one place where it appears. It appears on her abdomen, on her arms, on her legs, in her mouth. That was just really bizarre. It's very bizarre. I was impressed. (laughs) I was impressed. But she she doesn't feel that way about it, unfortunately. Well, she feels it's bizarre. I mean, it's a, an affliction for her. It's not something she can okay. control. Right. Uh, yeah. So, you know, if she goes it, to the Seven Eleven and as she's checking out, something appears on her face, what do you say to the person at the cash register? Yeah, right. <laughs> so, uh, Stephen, under, underpinning, I suppose, maybe all of your research, uh, including your research into parapsychology and you know the different different forms that, that takes is i suppose this argument over mind uh, and whether the mind is something that is essentially you know a creation of the brain and simply a part of the brain or whether it exists uh, externally and can uh, you know act externally to the brain and to the body essentially it's a, it has its own existence in a non-physical way because i mean even with synchronicity I suppose uh, hardcore scientists would say that, well, synchronicity is yes, something that happens. These coincidences can happen, um, but that's just, it, it's like you were saying earlier on, it's us that, uh, that uh, gives meaning to them when they don't necessarily have any inherent meaning or whether there is some influence of, of the mind. And this, the other argument is that there's some influence of, of the mind and that therefore posits that the mind is not simply uh, uh, confined to the brain and simply a epiphenomenon of, of the brain. And uh, so, can you talk a little bit about uh, about what your what your conclusions are, what the evidence is for that argument between? Well, um, let's see where to begin on that one. Um, if there's any evidence that I think would actually conclude evidence that would uh, conclusively help us decide one way or the other. I think that would have to be the evidence of post-mortem survival. Um, The usual kinds of arguments about psychological explanation, um, I don't, I mean, in my experience, don't convince anyone except those who are already convinced one way or another. 
um, I think psychological explanation can't proceed just along uh, the lines that uh, physicalists uh, propose, but it doesn't follow from that that the mind is an independent uh, entity of some kind. It just means that, uh, as far as I'm concerned, uh, psychological explanation um, is a fundamental form of explanation in science. Let me just say something about that, and then we'll get back to survival. Um, there's an assumption that a lot of scientists make. Part of it's perfectly reasonable, and that is that when we're explaining a phenomenon in terms of lower-level phenomena, um, the way we might explain, for example, heat as molecular motion, when we're trying to break down a phenomenon into its uh, subsidiary components and explain the, the upper-level phenomenon in terms of the lower-level phenomena, those kinds of explanations, those vertical or analytical explanations can't go on indefinitely. That at some point, the assumption is, we have to reach some ground-level primitive phenomena, at which point we can't ask how they occur. That's simply the way nature works, and nothing at a lower level explains why. Now, I think that's perfectly acceptable. There have to be some primitive regularities. Um, but the other assumption that usually goes along with that is that wherever these primitive phenomena occur, it's always at the level of the very small, you know, the atomic or the subatomic level or the biochemical level or the neurological level, and never at the observable level, for example, at the level of behavior. Um, but that's not an empirically established fact. That's just an article of faith. And there are lots of um, heavy-duty philosophical arguments that I think undermine it very effectively. So, I would, say, I would characterize myself as, as far as psychological explanation is concerned and parapsychological explanation is concerned, I would characterize myself as an anti-mechanist. I would say that there are some primitive regularities that have no lower level analytical explanation having to do with behavior, having to do perhaps with telepathy and clairvoyance and, and other psychic phenomena. And that is scientific ground level as far as I'm concerned. Nothing follows from that about whether minds are independent um, entities of some kind or another. That's a, uh, a relatively independent philosophical issue. But the only empirical data that I think would bear on it would be the evidence of survival. If there was a slam-dunk case for survival of bodily death, then I think um, standard physicalist maneuvers would simply just be thrown out. But that yeah, case turns out to be more complex than most people appreciate. Right. I've been reading uh, this Immortal Remains. Uh, and, you know, basically, by the time I, I think I was, I had already finished all the SPR material and the, ASP, uh, the ASPR by the time I was 16 and uh, <laughs> had kind of pretty much gone through the, the same things that you've gone through in here mm -hmm. uh, in terms of thinking. But I was probably thinking a little bit on a more basic and practical level because I was not, you know, philosophically trained. And to me, the question was, is it true or is it not true? And I could see that there were a lot of things in the, uh, in the phenomena that was recorded by this really fantastic bunch of people back then, and there's not been too much done of that quality since. I mean, the whole New Age thing just took, took, took the whole thing just down the tubes. <laughs> but um, it was just, to me, it was like there was so much confusion. There was, 
there were flashes of brilliance. There was incredible phenomena, you know, like Eusefia Palladino and, and right. some of the other mediums of that type. I mean, that woman could lose 15 pounds in a, after a session of, of producing stuff. Right. And it was just, to me, incredible. But there were so many lies. There was so much confusion that was also mixed up in the whole thing. And, you know, I just... I, I kind of got to where you were, where I was trying to work out the different ways of explaining all of this sort of thing. And uh, it, uh, it it's interesting to me that you just said that there is not a case that is absolutely incontrovertible. And this is true. I'm reading your cases and I'm and I'm saying, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh-huh. Because you can explain it this way or this way or this way. And even though I've had the experience of communicating with uh, many discarnate entities, um, I made a kind of a practice of it for a very long time, mm-hmm. uh, I could never say that I couldn't explain it by some psychological mechanism or some... But but, but even your, your super psi right. uh, explanation is... Yeah, the thing That's about that is not dunk either. No, it's it's like it's like where do you go? Where do you go? And I mean, I've communicated with my deceased mother, and I was convinced it was my deceased mother. I have communicated with deceased friends, and I am convinced because you know, as you point out, there are these characteristics of mind, of consciousness, of of personality. You know, the way words are put together. Uh, you know, essential things that you recognize, but you can't. You you can't list that as as some kind of a hard and fast material phenomenon and use that as proof for somebody. Um, when when you just, get to the end of Immortal Remains, I, I outline what I would regard as um, a couple different kinds of ideal cases in the face of which, if we ever got anything as close as that, I think um, it would actually be irrational to deny that uh, survival occurs. But nothing we have is, is close to that. And I would just also like to add that I think it may be there may be lots of good reasons for accepting the evidence for postmortem survival, but um, if you want to know whether there's uh, a slam dunk scientific case for it, that's where things get fuzzy because right. um, there are lots of trade-offs and standoffs between the various. Uh, leading hypotheses, and the leading hypotheses are the survival hypothesis and the living agent or super psi hypothesis. Those are the, the real two competitors, I think. Well, what if both of them are operational? You know, I mean, I, they certainly me may that, be. You know, it, that it's uh, that both things are operational, and uh, because I've seen so many things that you know that lean to one side, and then things that lead to you know, absolute survival. I mean, they're the, uh, and it's curious well, because, yeah, I mean, I, I had one experience when my the the night my grandfather died. He came home. He came into the house. I heard the door open. You know, I heard the key turn in the lock. The door open. I heard his footsteps. You know, I heard him go into the kitchen, open the cupboard, get the cup down. You know, get the pan, put the water in. You know, everything. And the thing is, is there was another person with me who heard these things. I mean, they were not. Did the actual just, physical phenomena happen, or did you just hear them? We heard them, and okay. then we got up and went into the kitchen, and nothing was there. 
I mean, nothing had, hap- nothing had happened. And, I understand. I mean, we actually thought somebody had broken in the house and we're going around with a baseball bat sneaking mm-hmm. around, you know. <laughs> and I just uh-huh. said, no, it's my grandfather. It's my grandfather because it sounded just like him. And then, of course, the phone call came in the morning that he had died at that time during during the night at the hospital. So, that's, that's uh, is, is it possible that, um, or could the problem be that science doesn't, doesn't have the framework of the language or uh, to, to actually explain these things. I mean, you know, we keep saying there's no slam dunk, there's no scientific evidence for it, but if science, if mainstream science is actively not exploring these or taking these, these cases of this phenomenon seriously, then obviously there never will be any scientific... I think they've made the, the rules for uh, talking about these things the wrong rules. That's what I think. I, I would say, to some extent, we have the language now to talk about them, but we don't have a uh, conclusive metaphysics to accompany it. But metaphysics always comes later anyway. I mean, uh, it's hostage to more pragmatic uh, explanatory needs. So I'd say the main problem with present-day science is not that we don't have the language, but that we're still looking at these explanations in terms of things happening at the level of the very small. I call that the small is beautiful assumption. Uh-huh. And I'd say that's, that's mainly the problem. It may be that there are primitive phenomena happening on the psychological level that um, are just primitive. They have no lower-level analysis. Now, I, let me just say, that doesn't mean that explanation comes to a halt or grinds to a halt at that point. It just means that analytical or vertical explanation can't go any further. But there are other kinds of explanation, explanation in terms of um, overriding regularities, covering law explanation, it's often called. I deal with this, by the way, in my new book, Crimes of Reason, when I uh, talk about memory and also psychological explanation generally and what it has to look like. Well, the next question would be... uh, I think because, you know, we've had our own experiences with trying to discuss these things to, you know, as long as I'm just a housewife with a hobby, you know, I'm I'm no threat. But when I engage with my husband, who is a physicist, and he kind of, uh, you know, defends me, then we become a little bit threatening and we kind of get a lot of attack uh, from various... Uh, I'm familiar and, with that. Yeah, and, and, it, and it gets pretty nasty i mean they they really get nasty so the thing you know since my my main passion in life is actually history believe it or not um what i've observed is is that there seems to be some sort of a of a political control issue with talking about this thing it's like you know during during the time of the renaissance when uh uh you know, God was placed firmly in in his heaven on one side and science was over here on the other side ruling the earth. Uh, you know, never the twain were supposed to meet. And that's kind of like the point when we lost our ability to talk about it in a normal way. That's what I think. One and good I think example that, of that political uh, uh, yes, force against I do. it is Wiki, it's Wikipedia. Um, oh, God, yes. Oh, my God. I'd say every parapsychological researcher who's done anything worthwhile in the field has had their 
biographies on Wikipedia taken over by um, militant skeptics who've removed everything positive and submitted false statements and um, just uh, and prevented corrections being made. Yes, mm. I, I've gone in and edited things in a more positive way on some of them, and then going back and find my edits removed and right. And I think right. they 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 got upset with me, so I I quit messing with them. Stephen, have you All seen right, any... Wikipedia is now. Go yeah, ahead. go ahead. No, I was going to ask. Well, I was just to say Wikipedia is useless. <laughs> yeah. It is. Uh, on that topic, I was just going to ask yes. if you, through the course of your your research, uh, for what probably thirty plus years now since you've been in this field, um, and and particularly in the area of academia, have you seen? Uh, have you experienced any evidence or seen any evidence or experienced anything that led you to believe that there was an actual kind of conscious agenda to suppress valid evidence or was it all merely the result of people with just prejudices, skepticism, that kind of thing? I'd say it's mostly the latter. The, mm. the only conscious effort that I'm aware of is um, something like the, the militant control of uh, Wikipedia information. Mm. Uh, mm-hmm. which seems actually very well organized, or um, James Randi's organization, formerly called PSYCOP. Um, yeah. But other than that, it's it's mostly just, just prejudice. I mean, one example, I was invited to speak to the physics department at my university. And mm-hmm. um, the idea was that I was just going to explain what got me into parapsychology and the sorts of uh, evidence I've acquired over the years and so on. Uh, Before I was three or four minutes into my talk, various irate uh, members of the physics department tried shouting me down and spouting the usual and actually quite ignorant um, mantras about the uh, poor quality of the evidence. It was clear they didn't know what the evidence was. But I wasn't even permitted to talk. The graduate students who were there who were actually interested were appalled at the behavior of uh, their mentors. And one very well-known physicist in the department from China um, stood up and came to my defense and started talking about Qigong and all the evidence from China for uh, um, Qigong practitioners. So I've Mm -hmm. encountered that sort of thing for decades now. And that's why I didn't do anything in this area until I got tenure. You know, I may be crazy, but I'm not stupid. Yeah, that was one of my favorite lines in the book there. I highlighted it and put a star by it. <laughs> <laughs> what what line? The one where he says, I may be crazy, but I'm not stupid. Yeah. yeah. Just, uh, I, in reading about the the skeptics' attacks, and it's really, you know, it's scurrilous the way that you describe it. They go about it, and, and we've seen it ourselves. Um, but particularly in the, in the area of, um, of life after death, for example, I... Anytime I meet, say, an atheist or someone who's a real skeptic about that kind of stuff, and there's, you know, there's no way to uh, resolve those two positions, obviously, right? One person's convinced that there's nothing, it's just they're a materialist, and another person has experience or awareness that there is something more. So I just figure that the best way to resolve those disputes is to say to the person, from my position, to the person who's an atheist or doesn't believe in anything other than materialism and no life after death, I just say, well, I... I fully accept that that's true for you. Mm-hmm. 
you know, well, and they don't like tactful. that. Because, <laughs> well, the thing is, they they don't like it because what you're saying is suddenly what you get in response to that is, well, hang on a minute, you know, are you saying I have no soul or uh, that that you know what I mean? They they've gone a little <laughs> bit defensive, like, well, are you saying you're better than me? That what? You're trying to tell me that there's two realities here in the sense that for some people it's true that they have uh, more after after the death of the physical body and other people know they're just one food. And that's what I'm oh, I'm surprised they didn't I mean, say to you, uh, say, if I had been in their position, I think I would have said, are you saying that uh, um, truth is just relative, that uh, my opinion is just mine and it really doesn't count for anything? No, Which is, I, would I think what you were saying. No, I'm, I was saying that there's two. I was positing subtly that there's two realities: one for one person and one for another. Yeah, the whole thing I think is uh, <clears throat> we have this. We have this. Uh, how to say this? We have this channeling experiment that's been going on for all these years, you know, and 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 it's very specific because my intent was to move beyond just talking to dead dudes, as we call them, <laughs> and. You know, and I had a theory, and we put it into practice. Did all this, and it took you know a couple of years to finally get something you know that was reasonably, uh, reasonably good. And then it turned out to be really, really good and really, really interesting. And one of the one of the bits of information that has come through this is that there are individuals who do not have individuated souls, and there are individuals who do have individuated souls, and the ones who do not, uh, you know, basically have kind of a, an arrangement like a soul pool type thing, like, you know, cows and dogs and horses, you know, animals, that sort of thing. And other people have individuated, you know, souls that survive bodily death and go on and reincarnate and various other things happen to them. So, the, so you know, we get, we've gotten into some of these arguments about this, and, and I even had one of the Randy people come after me. And I said that to him, too. I said, you know, he says, well, you know, can't you tell me something, you know, explain to me, you know, how uh, <clears throat> can you convince me, et cetera. I said, no, I can't convince you. I said, you know, because for you, it's something that, you know, your point of view is real for you. Mm-hmm. But it's not so much that it's like two completely different realities, but that there are just like there are dogs and cats and cows and horses and so forth in the reality with us. You know, so maybe there are individuals who are in the reality with us that look very much like, you know, human beings. They have very powerful computing brains and they can do many things. And But for them, the reality of their survival is different. I mean, I think about this poor guy, Carl Sagan, you know, he believed that when he died that, you know, he was nothing, that it was the end, you know, glides out, you know, finis. Well, maybe for him that was true. The reason I'm having trouble with that is that, um, I mean, e- well, first of all, even if there is evidence of survival, we don't have evidence that everybody survives. Uh, right. Most we would have evidence that some people survive. So right. that certainly may be the case. Although it would surprise me if um, nature is fickle about that. Uh, I don't think it's I fickle. I think it's all very organized. I mean, if, if information, if uh, information is the underlying. Uh, reality of everything, then, you know, it would form itself into uh, you know, constructs and, and so forth, and there would be no reason for it not to have something like that, to have infinite variety. Hmm. Wait, I didn't you know, understand kind of, that. If information is the basis for everything, that I don't understand. Oh, well, oh, sorry. 
that's that's kind of where we go with it from the physics point of view because we're you know kind of working on that sort of thing and information being the 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 you know, information is our equivalent of your supersizing. Uh, no, I don't think it is. I think that's actually uh, an expression of the small, even more beautiful assumption, which I know, which I think is false. I think it means. I think information is one of those things that exists at the macro level first, and at the micro level second. Mm, no, I think it's. I think information exists at, at the most fundamental. It's the most fundamental thing. I mean, but. Well, wait. wait excuse me. One second. Um, Go ahead. There are at least two major senses of information. I mean, from information theory, there's, uh, let's put it in the language of logic, we could say there's syntactic information, which carries no meaning whatsoever. Uh, and then there's semantic information, which is where meaningful information occurs. Um, right. Meaningful information, what matters, can't be analyzed in terms of lower level uh, syntactic information. That just doesn't happen. Right. But then I don't understand in what sense information at the uh, non-meaningful level explains uh, what's uh, informationally significant or meaningful at the macro level. Well, we'll have to ask my husband. Honey, are you, are you uh, there? I'm waiting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, you Try know, to contain your enthusiasm, Mark. <laughs> first, uh, there is a... Uh, growing use of the concept of information on a micro level in physics. That's the first thing, okay? So it's not macroscopic. Uh, right. There are now a lot of books about uh, quantum information and information prior to probability and trying to base uh, all physics on information, including micro level and so on. So that's the first thing. Right. Second... Second, uh, there is an information as a basic concept when you go... I, I didn't see you mention it in your book. I was reading uh, Psychokinesis, mm -hmm. and I didn't see it mentioned um, the theories, including uh, how they call it, hyperdimensional physics, Kaluza-Klein theories, other dimensions, and so on. Uh, but there is an extensive research going in this direction, and in particular, there are uh, very well-developed theories where you add to space and time dimension, uh, other dimension, and they are called like organization dimension and information dimension. Uh, but, uh, of course, I know this is not very popular, Nevertheless, it's uh, well developed. So uh, I know a little bit about that, uh, and therefore uh, I would not reject information as a basic concept for future physics. I, let me be clear. I don't reject information as a basic concept for <coughs> physics at all. Uh, all I'm saying is that the sense of the term information as used in those contexts is quite different from the sense of information um, that's involved when we talk about uh, communicating with one another or uh, transmitting oh, yeah, messages it's very and different. so on. Absolutely. That's, yeah, so that's yeah. all I'm saying. And that, that yeah, kind of information right. cannot be analyzed in terms of information as it's being used in these uh, contexts in physics. So in that sense, um, what interests us about psychic phenomena are not going to be explained in terms of um, information at the level in which it's being discussed in physics. 
Okay, maybe as a physicist, I would add one more thing related. And uh, I would uh, come back to the concept of synchronicity that okay. you discussed. It. And when you said, okay, there are things that uh, happen and look like similar, and we consider them synchronistic, but mm-hmm. uh, uh, to decide whether things are similar or not, some criteria are needed, and there okay. are no, so to say, objective criteria, criteria invented always by human beings. Right, and exactly. One person would invent one criterion, another person would invent another criterion, okay? Of course, there is like a common sense, a mainstream criteria, but they are just, uh, because it historically happened, it doesn't have to be so. And right. the same, uh, the same uh, happens with information. Now, there are these people talking about information, uh, randomness, probability, uh, and uh, complexity. What it is when a sequence is random, okay? What is the definition? Mm-hmm. What is the definition uh, of complexity, okay? So uh, I was uh, discussing this subject with uh, Chaitin. You know the name? Uh, okay, so he is the main information guy in the world now. And uh, uh, he was talking about Turing machines, all kinds of things, mm-hmm. how we define complexity, how we define organization. And uh, okay, so he has criteria. But then I said, okay, uh, if I uh, defi- take different criteria, wouldn't it be so that what he- we consider as a completely chaotic phenomenon will be not chaotic, chaotic by organizing according to this criteria. Uh, uh, yes, indeed. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but it, we take it for granted that we know what organization means, that we know what information means. Information is meaningful when you know the code. If you don't yes. know the code, it's, it's, it's a mess. And well, you know, it's deciding what counts as information is analogous to um, trying to answer the question, how many things are in this room? Um, there's, exactly, yeah. There's, there's no single correct answer to that. You know, if, if we were right. all theoretical physicists, we might agree that there are billions and billions of things in this room. But if we're insurance adjusters or household movers or interior decorators, uh, we might say there are far fewer things in the room. No, and in fact, no, a theoretic, theoretical physicist, if he is way for educated, would say there is only one, one thing, quantum wave of the universe. <laughs> okay, well, that's another, that's another answer. You're right. So... My point is, or if, if you look at a pie that hasn't been sliced up, and I said to you, how many, how many pieces are there in the pie? I mean, there's no objective answer to that question. It depends on how we want to slice it, what our, what our reasons are for taking one approach rather than another. And exactly. And that's, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say that's why I suggested and brought in the idea of information, because you can, if, if you look at information theory, you know, at the deeper level, you may find some answers or we may find some answers or somebody may find some answers at some point to some of these uh, super psi and 
you know, phenomena because, you know, this source we've been talking about, you know, it refers to human beings with, uh, uh, as, as wave reading consciousness units, you know, and the, and the, you know, the wave of the universe, you know, how do you read the wave? You know, how do you, how do you understand? How do you, well, I don't see how that comes out of information pie. theory. Yeah. Well, I, I agree with your conclusion, but I don't see how that comes out of information theory, at least as I'm uh, familiar with it. Well, if, if for example, um, say an individual was a, uh, a composite of, of sphere-packed uh, bits and bytes of information, you know, making a, you know, different configurations, geometric configurations, and then those accumulate or accrete and they grow into and become a soul or a wave-reading consciousness unit over time, you know, through the evolution of the universe, um, you know, then if you try to break it down to its constituent parts, you know, to the tiniest level, you would find, you know, bits and bytes of information. Like, and, and that's how I think of information is like bits and bytes on and off, yes and no, one and one and zero. And all the many configurations that those bits and bytes of information can take on and make up that uh, produce, you know, all of the vast, uh, clever things that a computer can do. Maybe, maybe I add just one thing here. Sure. Uh, my favorite, my favorite uh, uh, physicist was uh, John Arch- Archibald Wheeler. Okay. Uh, uh, yeah. And uh, he became uh, famous for a piece that he wrote in some philosophical uh, collection of es- philosophical essays. Uh, and the, the title was It from Bit, where essentially he tried uh, to uh, understand uh, quantum theory and the puzzles and paradoxes by reducing it to bit. I mean, at the basis there was an information. I, I just mentioned that there is such a trend. Mm-hmm. I, I think I'm aware of that trend, and um, I have no problem with it so long as it's not trying to reduce, um, let's call it semantic information or um, certain other patterns that I believe first occur at the uh, the macro level, uh, including well, behavioral a, patterns. Well, yeah, and that's why whenever, whenever I've looked at um, uh, any kind of so-called or alleged phenomena, you know, I mean, I was really happy to see you were doing that too. You know, I look at the psychological issues first. Can we eliminate... You know, something really strange by looking at it psychologically first. If we can't, then let's go to the next level and then go to the next level and then go to the next level. And, you know, but then, of course, my tendency to do that made me end up with information theory because I kept kept going and going. Yeah, I just don't see how that works. I mean, um, but I don't know whether we want to pursue that any any further here. No, no, because I would like to hear about what you think is the most compelling case for survival that you've ever encountered? I'll tell you, well, two things I would say about that. One is I'm not sure any single case at the current state of the evidence um, by itself is is compelling. What What I find compelling in the case of mediums are entire careers where the medium has been remarkably successful over... Uh, an extended period, like Mrs. Piper was uh, providing 
interesting and compelling messages for almost a quarter of a century. Uh, I think that is more persuasive than any particular one of Mrs. Piper's incidents. But the evidence that I'm, I'm actually finding most intriguing is the evidence from heart-lung transplant cases. Um, oh, yeah? These, yeah, I write about, maybe you haven't gotten to that part of immortal remains. No. Yet, but um, what interests me about these is that there are a number of now pretty well-attested cases where recipients of heart-lung transplants have taken on personality characteristics of the donors whom they know nothing about. And now, some people look at this as um, uh, a manifestation of cellular memory, which I actually think makes no sense whatsoever, but that's another story. Um, I think there's a more interesting possibility, and that is that um, if individuals can, in some sense, survive the death and dissolution of their uh, bodies, they may have a special attachment to their vital organs and that this is analogous to a kind of temporary possession of the... Uh, so they just move in with the possession. heart and lung. Something like that. And I'll give you a couple examples of the kind of phenomena I'm talking about. And then I'll tell you a, a case that I find particularly interesting. Um, for example, <clears throat> there was a... Um, a blue-collar construction worker, I believe he was, who received a heart-lung transplant from a, a 19-year-old black classical uh, violinist. And um, suddenly, after the surgery, his interest in country music was replaced by an interest in classical music that drove his wife crazy. And he would listen obsessively to classical music. And he started hanging out with the blacks at, uh, at work, which he never did before. Um, another case was uh, a young man who received a heart-lung transplant from a lesbian uh, painter. <clears throat> and after the surgery, he first of all began to develop an interest in art and would go to art galleries and all the time and just stare at paintings for a long time. He started carrying a purse. And his girlfriend reports that he started making love to her in ways that suggested an intimate knowledge of uh, female anatomy that um, seemed quite unprecedented in their relationship. Far out. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> but now, the case that I find most interesting and suggestive here about what's actually going on, there was a case of a, a very young boy who received a heart-lung transplant from another young boy. And when he was first introduced to the parents of the donor, he ran up to the parents and started snuggling up with the mother in the way that the deceased child had done. But most interesting of all about that was, I forget the name of the, the donor, let's say it was Jerry. He, he, the child would report that uh, Jerry is with me all the time and sometimes I just let him come out. Now, the reason I take that seriously is because children are likely to have a more accurate view of what's going on here than older children or adults who've already been instructed about what's uh, possible and what's impossible and what they should believe and what they shouldn't say. Um, so I think that the child's naive report may be actually more telling here than um, what, what adults in similar circumstances would be saying. So it's as if the child was aware of the, the presence of the discarnate um, and was simply allowing uh, the discarnate to uh, take over the body for periods of time. 
Are you familiar with uh, spirit release therapy? I know some some things about it, not a whole lot. Well, that's what I did for a long time. I was a, I did hypnotherapy for like 25 years, mm-hmm. and I I got in. You know, this was part of my exploration, and I uh, read some material and talked to some people about the spirit release therapy, and. Uh, uh, you know, I thought, well, that's pretty far out. I, you know, I really can't believe that. But there was a series of questions that, you know, ask, and there's a technique. And so I started employing it with my clients, just experimentally, you know, not telling them in, in advance anything about what was going to happen or what I was going to do or why, <clears throat> because I didn't want to contaminate my samples. And I would say that without exception, every individual that I worked with alleged to have, you know, one, two, three, four, seven, ten or more attached entities that were, uh, you know, as kind of like what you're describing with the uh, with the kid, you know, that says, you know, Jerry is with me and I let him come out sometimes. And uh, it was it was pretty fascinating. I, you know, because I could I could put the person under hypnosis and uh, develop a rapport with the attached entity and then query this entity uh, just for data. You know, get information, get information, get information, you know, and to try to find out if there's any rational basis to this, if there's any reality to this. Can they give me any kind of checkable information? And uh, it was it was a pretty fascinating thing. So I think that uh, maybe... It happens a lot more often than people suspect. What do you think? Maybe, but my my alarms go off when I hear that these things are coming out under hypnosis because hypnotic subjects are especially compliant and um, well. Yeah, I know that receptive to suggestion. Yeah, so mm-hmm. I'm not a suggesting hypnotherapist. Believe me, these people here will tell you. Um, well, I can believe I'm, that, but I, I think I was very cool. careful. I was yeah. very very careful, and every I mean. I, I would, you know, it would take a long time to explain exact techniques and, you know, the kind of words you use and how you go about sure. doing it, yeah. that you have to do it in a very, very careful way so that no part of, you know, what you're, no part of what's in your head gets put into their head, mm. you know, except telepathically, of course, and they, you can't help that. <laughs> right. But, exactly. uh, you know, it's just... Uh, we, uh, <clears throat> Stephen, we have a, a call on the line. I'm just going to go ahead and take it, Okay. Okay. Hi, caller. What's your name? Where are you calling from? Hi, this is Harrison calling from North Carolina. Hey, Harrison. Welcome to the show. Do you have a question for Stephen? Hi, thanks. Yeah, I've got a few actually, but I'll try to whittle it down. Um, right. I think one of the one of the things that I'm most interested in is because um, I've read some of your books, uh, Stephen. Uh, not all of them yet, but um, after reading them, I, uh, I searched yeah. online and found about um, the latest research that you've been doing. Um, for the past few years with the uh, physical medium, uh, Kai. Yes. And I noted on their blog also that you've got a, a paper coming out um, in the, the Journal of Scientific Exploration. Correct. And I, I was just wondering if you could describe some of the, um, some of the phenomena that you've uh, witnessed um, at Kai's seances and maybe... Sure also describe um, like any kind of conclusions that you've come to about them or you know how they relate to 
the the research that was done, um, you know, at the beginning of the SPR, but you know, has kind of gone out of uh, out of favor in the in the parapsychological community. And uh, maybe just yeah, talk a bit about that. Okay. Um... I'm I'm stumbling here for just a second because there have been some late-breaking developments in that oh. case where we have uh, very good reason, I'd say indisputable reason, for saying that on some occasions, at least in the past, uh, Kai, the medium, has deployed a magic trick. Mm. Um, but the evidence for that doesn't seem to have tainted uh, the work that he did under my supervision. So... Um, the summer issue of the Journal of Scientific Exploration will have two papers on uh, the Felix Circle phenomena, one by me and one by one of my uh, co-investigators, Michael Nam. Um, and we're currently reassessing the, the case <coughs> on the basis of the, uh, the shadow of suspicion that unfortunately now uh, is cast over the, the case as a whole. But I would say that there are some phenomena which are, are still very difficult to explain away. And so let me describe some of what they are. Um, first of all, there have been a lot of table levitations, uh, some recorded in infrared, some recorded in uh, very low light uh, with very sensitive cameras. Um, those, as far as I can tell, um, have been untouched by the, the current suspicion. There are also, during Kai's uh, cabinet seances, where he's ostensibly possessed by the spirit of the late parapsychologist Hans Bender, um, there are a number of things that occur, say, almost 50 inches away from the medium while I'm draped all over him. Um, these tend to occur in darkness and um, are still impressive, including various kinds of knocks and rapping sounds that occur all over the seance room, which has been carefully inspected beforehand. Um, and moving more rapidly than I think any one person could uh, could move undetected, uh, even in the darkness. Um, and various light phenomena. Um, at, for example, uh, at one of my earliest seances, uh, it was a table seance with Kai. This was being recorded in infrared, high-definition infrared. I was seated at the opposite end of the table from Kai. And a light started flickering in between my legs, sort of in the area around my testicles, which provided uh, an occasion for considerable hilarity. <laughs> and the infrared video would have revealed any deployment of any kind of device for producing that light and or any suspicious movements on the part of Kai or anyone else at the seance, and there were no such indications. But the, the best experiments we did were recently, about a year ago, uh, in a private farmhouse in Austria, um, owned by my uh, co-investigator Robert Narholz, a, a documentary filmmaker. This was uh, a farmhouse belonging to the Narholz family. Um, we had one large room completely designated as a seance room. It was stripped of all um, items of furniture except a seance table and a bunch of chairs and for the cabinet seance, a, a cabinet that was put in there, but investigated very carefully. The room was kept padlocked. The windows were locked, uh, double locked from the inside. Um, I had the key to the padlock. Nobody could get in without my permission. Uh, nobody knew where I kept the key. Um, before the cabinet seance, uh, I did a strip search of Kai, careful strip search, uh, 
Then we put him in clothing, which I carefully investigated before uh, dressing him in it. We followed him down to the seance room. He kept his arms raised in the air, so I know he wasn't um, dipping his hands into some accessories on the way downstairs. And I seated him in the cabinet. Then before anybody else entered the room, um, we patted down all the uh, the males. And Kai's wife uh, was strip-searched by the one female member of our team. And under those conditions, we saw Kai's usual display of ectoplasm. He pulled a, a huge amount of ectoplasm out of his mouth. Uh, it landed on the floor in a kind of animated heap. And at one point, it started glowing green. Kai would stretch it and move it around, and he brought it within two inches of my face. Uh, there was no odor. There was no discoloration. Uh, when it was glowing green, it was just green. When it was lying on the floor under red light, it was clearly just a, a, an untarnished, uh, whitish kind of material. So I'd say the only uh, credible hypothesis now about where the ectoplasm came from would either be that um, let's be blunt about this, Kai either regurgitated it or he stuck it up his ass. And, uh, what is this stuff? You said Did you touch ectoplasm. it? Uh, no, at the time he wasn't allowing anyone to touch it. He's now allowing people to, uh, to touch it. So I'm hopeful that if we have a, another series of seances with Kai, um, we'll be able to get a few cells for analysis. I mean, he was giving the standard spiritist explanation of why we couldn't touch it. And I think it may have been a, a genuine, if irrational, fear. He was saying uh, a lot of mediums in the past had claimed that when the, uh, the ectoplasm was touched, it was painful to them. And I think right. I feared that it would be painful to him. Mm -hmm. But the fact is, it falls from his mouth onto the floor. And so it makes contact with the floor and it doesn't hurt him. So I think there's no mm -hmm. reason to think that uh, touching a, a human hand is going to be any different. Mm. Um, so I just had some visitors here from Norway who went to a, a seance uh, near Oslo with, with Kai, and uh, some participants were able to touch it. So I'm, I'm eager to get some testimony from them about what that was like, and uh, I just spoke to Kai yesterday, and I'm still hoping we'll have another series of Austrian seances. I, I also have to say that I can't rule out the fact, and I've been speaking to a famous magician or two around Las Vegas, where I live, um, it is possible to hide some kinds of material in a capsule or a condom and, and stick it up your ass, and then when to make it disappear, you can swallow it. Um, I, I don't think uh, Kai did that. I think, first of all, if he had brought it up from his gut, um, there would have been some odor, some discoloration, some evidence of his recent meal, uh, or the large quantity of black tea that he drank right before the seance. Um, and if he had pulled it out of his ass and got rid of it, somewhere there would be an odor. So yeah. I, I, can't, I can't positively rule it out, but magicians I know, first of all, magicians I know, are, however good they are, are usually too quick to say, well, it can all be a magic trick. They don't usually know the good evidence or the, uh, the good conditions under which the phenomena were uh, obtained. Exactly. So I take, those, I take those pronouncements with a grain of salt. Um, so I, I think there's strong but not coercive evidence yet for the reality of the ectoplasm. I th there are things we need to do to, to rule out certain hypotheses, like the ass and regurgitation hypotheses, and I've discussed this with Kai. So next time, first of all, we'll supply the cabinet, um, although I think mm -hmm. the cabinet was inspected very carefully. We inspected it really carefully, trust me. Oh. Um, 
the other thing we can do is to sew Kai into a one-piece uh, jumpsuit. Um, he's no open openings. to this. Uh, yeah, right. The other thing we can do, which I really like, and I hope he'll agree to it, we can put boxing gloves on his hands and seal the uh, the straps. So that mm. will seriously limit his ability to manipulate anything inside the cabin. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Or peel a Definitely. This this sounds very strange, but actually, you've it's very nineteenth century. Uh, yes. Yeah, it it's is. A historical case. Totally cool. Who who is it you, you describe about? Um, is is it the lady Palladino? She did something yeah. similar. Eusapia yeah. Palladino. Eusapia, yeah. Yeah. Well, and Eusapia, like Kai, was a mixed medium. That is, uh, she admitted cheating on occasion when she could get away with it and when she didn't like the investigators. But the difference yeah. between Eusapia and Kai is that Eusapia so far, I mean, Eusapia was willing to produce phenomena under conditions much tighter than any to which Kai has so far agreed. So table levitations would occur when no one was touching it. Um, she had investigators draped all over her at one point. Uh, one was controlling her from the left side, one was controlling her from the right side, the other was sitting on her lap and she was tied to the chair, and tables would still levitate at a distance and objects would move out of the cabinet behind her and so forth. Um, and she would also work in decent electric illumination. Yeah, um, that's that's what I was going to ask. Why does Kai insist on the darkness? We do everything we do, you know, in a fully lighted room. Right. So well, I don't... again, see... This is the problem. Kai, on one hand, wants to claim that he's um, not as prodigious a mediumistic talent as the greats from the past, like Didi Hume or Eusapia Palladino. And so he thinks he's more likely than they are uh, to be subject to various constraints, like uh, the inhibiting effects of infrared. Although I've I've recorded a table levitation in infrared with him, and he likes red light. Uh, for seances, and the red lamp that he uses generates more energy in the infrared spectrum than the the beam from my infrared high-res camcorder. So these are not necessarily rational, but and now I think we have to view them with a certain amount of suspicion. So Kai uh-huh. can make all that go away if he's willing to produce things in better illumination. And Where does he live? He lives in Germany. So he's he's just so you you'd be coming over here to. See him again. You know, we're in France. You can just, just drop in, and and we'll uh, we'll chat about well, some of these things. Mind, so show you what, well, we'll show you what we do. Well, that's cool. <laughs> All right, I'll keep that in mind. I mean, if we if we have another series with him, it would be back at the farmhouse in Austria because that's a really secure location. Yeah. 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 Um, I don't know. It's hard to know where to go after that, isn't it? Yeah, well, yeah, the I mean, thing about the, does, the ectoplasm, so does the ectoplasm stay around? Uh, it eventually disappears. Usually the final stage of a cabinet seance is where um, Kai is covered in a kind of netting or cocoon that stretches from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. And then usually it disappears instantaneously behind the curtain. Now, see, I want to. I think it would also be very compelling if we would be allowed to see the reabsorption of the material into his body. I uh-huh. think that would be that would be as uh, convincing as anything he could do. Otherwise, we have to remain open to the possibility that he's somehow swallowing it, um, surviving the strip search that follows, and then in the privacy of his own bathroom, you know, just regurgitating it again. 
I don't think that's happening. I think it's real. Well, well, I'm inclined to also, but given the current and I think justified state of suspicion with respect to some phenomena, we have to be extra cautious about uh, the rest. Yeah. And this is the problem Kai has created for himself. Yeah, I know, but... You know, I mean, I've I've seen that's not my particular talent. Uh, you know, mine is kind of different. But I've seen and experienced so many things, and and I'm not a dissociative. I'm not even hypnotizable. You know, so I mean, I'm always on top of what's happening with with kind of a very alert, conscious attention. And mm-hmm. I yet I have seen and experienced some things that are surpassingly strange. So I know, I know, as they say, shit happens. <laughs> yeah, well, don't misunderstand me. I'm, I'm perfectly open to the paranormality of the ectoplasm, and I hope it's the case. But I think we need, at this point, to hold Kai to a higher evidential standard than he's so yeah. far been willing to submit. I, I still find it amazing that, um, that people like you who are investigating the paranormal, in quotes, uh, have to go to these lengths to try and prove the reality of it or that it is not, at least that it's certainly not faked, before any anybody in the scientific community or the scientific community as a whole would take these kind of things seriously and at least try and investigate them and come up with a theory as well, to what won't. they might even, mean. But, even if but you it's prove amazing. it, they won't because even, it's, it's been done. I mean, look at what William Crooks did for crying I know, but it's, it's crazy. Right. That's like, what's I mean, amazing that it's still going on. I mean, there should be there's ample evidence now from the past, never mind the present cases, for taking this stuff seriously. And in the past, yeah. it was harder to do the magic trick. Exactly. It's exactly. In the past, they didn't have the technology to do such fakery. Mm-hmm. Um, Shall I tell you my favorite case? Yeah, yeah, Crooks. Uh, this is Crooks's accordion test with uh, Dee Dee Hume. Uh, Dee Dee Hume right. um, ostensibly would make an accordion float around the room, often untouched, sometimes held at the end away from the keys, playing melodies on request. Now, Hume claimed that the the power, so called, was strongest under the seance table, and under, that understandably can sound suspicious. But um, Crooks, being the clever researcher he was, figured that. Um, it's better not to force Hume any more than necessary out of his comfort zone. And so here's what he did. First of all, he bought a new accordion for the occasion. So nobody could claim this was one of Hume's props. Secondly, he went to Hume's apartment, watched him change clothes to make sure that he wasn't concealing some device on his person. Although this was 1871, so it's not, kind of, it's not clear what kind of relevant device Like what device kind of device possibly... would he conceal? Yeah. yeah. Right, Exactly. <laughs> Then he brought Hume to his house where he had constructed a cage made out of wire and wood um, which fit just under his dining room table. There was room for Hume to get his hand in under the tabletop and into the cage to hold the accordion at the end away from the keys. You know, it's too bad you can't see the helpful gestures I'm making here. Um, There there wasn't room for Hume to get his hand all the way into the cage to uh, manipulate the keys. There were nine observers present, two stationed on either side of... um, Hume, so they could see that he wasn't taking his feet out of his boots. There was another observer stationed under the table with a lamp. And under those, occasion, under those conditions, the accordion was seen to move in and out. The keys were depressed. Sounds came out of the accordion. Then Hume was instructed to take his hand out of the cage, put both hands on the table. An electric current was run through the cage, and the accordion still flopped around inside the cage. 
Now, I think that's one of the cleanest and most convincing experiments in the history of parapsychology. No magician has ever dared to try to duplicate that under conditions in which Hume succeeded, and I think for yeah. good reason. Yeah, and then there, he also did the uh, the test with the weight of the board. The and, spring balance uh, test, yes. Yeah, and the, the objections to that were, well, you know, he didn't accurately uh, uh, measure the weight of the board, you know, so it's it's just... It's just amazing the way they went after him after he did these experiments and and accused him of uh, what was it of being uh, uh, fuddle headed because he'd been breathing too many fumes in the laboratory or something. I mean, it's crazy. Uh, well, um, among many other uh, yeah charges, yeah. It's, I mean, it's crazy. It's, it's it's like what happened to what's what's this guy uh, this Nobel Prize guy the physicist uh, uh, Brian Brian Josephson. You know, Brian Joseph, yeah, he gets the Nobel Prize, so he thinks he can start, you know, maybe doing a few things that really interest him. And Mm -hmm. immediately in the physics community, the rumors start racing around that Josephson is having a nervous breakdown because he's become interested in paranormal phenomena. Can you believe that? Not to mention cold fusion. Oh, yeah. It's just just amazing the way that... uh, And... What I want to know is how did those people like that get to be in charge of science? Uh, well, that's a complex story. But, uh, you know, academia is, is extremely political, and the cream doesn't necessarily rise to the top. You can say that again. You can, yeah. You can say that uh, we still have Harrison on the line. Harrison, do you uh, have anything else? Did that address what you wanted, Harrison? Yeah, no, yeah that, was, that was great. Um, that was cool. I've... I've I don't know if this might be getting into speculative territory, but thinking about like ectoplasm, I'm wondering um, because it's been so long since, at least that I'm aware of, that anyone's really studied this since you know the early days of the research. I'm wondering um, what are some of the if if there were any theories on to actually what exactly this ectoplasm is. It, like I know you were mentioning with the gold leaf lady, there are a couple. Um, hypotheses about that. Is it apportation or is it uh, like a de novo materialization? Um, or in the, in the case of ectoplasm, might it be like constructed out of, you know, something out of the body, like a lot of mediums will lose weight? Is there a connection there? And if it's this kind of de novo materialization, um, and it, so it, it would appear in a seance as if matter is coming, just coming into existence, or at least some kind of matter, like might that have any kind of um, relevance for matter in general, or is it like it's a totally a different phenomenon? It's a very good question. I think one of the, the complicating factors is that we don't know to what extent experiment or influence or prior beliefs of the medium play a role. And let me give you one of my favorite incidents from the past. Um, you may know about the case of uh, Kathleen Golliger, studied by uh, a mechanical engineer, W.J. Crawford. Miss um, Golliger was an Irish medium who um, levitated tables, did some other interesting things, and Crawford w- wanted to know what mechanism allowed the table to levitate. And he even took pictures of the ectoplasm uh, coming out of Miss Gallagher. It seemed to emerge from various of her orifices, move along the floor, brace itself on the floor, and then lift the table as if it was a cantilever. Now, 
this was something that appealed to Crawford as an engineer. It gave a quasi-mechanical explanation of how the table was able to levitate. Meanwhile, on the continent, uh, physiologists like uh, Jaly and Richet and Schrenk Notzing were investigating another medium, Eva C., um, and her ectoplasm behaved much more biologically. So there are descriptions, for example, of ectoplasm coming out of Eva C, forming a little hand with fingers that would wave and so on. Um, what would have been, nobody at the time took seriously experiment or expectancy effects. It would have been really interesting for the mediums to switch experimenters to see if Kathleen Gallagher's ectoplasm would behave more organically in the presence of Schrenk Notzing, for instance, and whether uh, Eva C's ectoplasm would behave more mechanically in the presence of um, W.J. Crawford. So there was an interesting opportunity missed. But all the mediums themselves have certain um, presuppositions about what's possible in the way of ectoplasm. Kai already knows the vast history of the mediumistic literature. And so he, his material resembles a lot of what's preceded him in the past. The problem is that the term ectoplasm covers a variety of things. Some, some manifestations that look like they're paper cutouts, some things that look like cheesecloth, some things that look more clay-like. And it's not that we have a, a, a firm concept here with which we can really carefully uh, say what ectoplasm is. So I'd say there's still a lot more to discover. It, it, may, it may be able to take virtually any form. It may be able to appear on the medium. It may be able to come out of the medium. All, and that may just depend on what the medium or the experimenter thinks is going on. We don't know. Hmm. Yeah, a lot of these things seem to be very context-specific which is yeah. why it's so difficult to reproduce things experimentally. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, I think that's exactly right. And you write about that in, in the book. I've been reading The Limits of Influence, and uh, you make the case in the beginning, the importance of non-experimental evidence. It's not to dismiss the importance in other scientific fields of experimental evidence, but that in this field, there is already a wealth of data and most of it, in fact, the strongest data happens spontaneously. Mm. Well, you know, most in interesting things people do can happen only in real-life situations. The, the famous parapsychological skeptic, C.E.M. Hansel, um, in a BBC documentary on the case for ESP, uh, made the stupid remark. He said, well, it's easy to prove if anyone has telepathy. Just have them tell me what I'm thinking. And I'm, oh, right. I'm, really, I'm really sorry the producer who was interviewing him didn't say, oh, is that right, Professor Hansel? Let's see an erection. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure Hansel would have protested violently uh, against drawing the inference from his inability to come up with an erection that uh, he's simply unable <laughs> to get it up. <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh, my God. It's, um, go ahead. Were you going to say something, Stephen? Well, I... You know, there are all sorts of abilities, and, and we know this. This is just common sense that can only be studied in their natural context. If you want to uh, evaluate a tennis player's ability to return serves, you have to uh, watch the person play an actual match because some people practice better than they play, some play better than they practice. But you can't evaluate that particular athletic ability unless opponents are trying their hardest to win. And even then it varies from day to day. Um, so... 
sexual performance, athletic abilities, musical ability, uh, ability to be witty, the ability to be kind. You know, all these things vary from context to context. That's the norm for human abilities, not what we can manage to get people to do in the straitjacketed conditions appropriate to laboratory experimentation. Hmm. And, you know, it's premature in a way to bring parapsychological abilities into the lab because we have no idea what we're trying to take out of real-life situations and into the lab. It may be totally inappropriate, just as inappropriate as um, trying to study sexual performance in laboratory context or sensuality. Most of the things you've, um, most of the research you've engaged in, or most, most of the areas of uh, parapsychology that you've um, research have been to do with people, individuals, whether yes. it's the gold leaf lady or Kai and phenomena happening around people and possibly uh, directly related to individuals. But have you uh, looked at anything that could be termed or could be understood to be more objective that is kind of out there and not necessarily related to one individual that also comes under the kind of a phenomenon or parapsychological phenomenon? Well, I had I, two things. I had to make a practical decision at, at, uh, at an early stage in all of this that, um, look, it may, it may not come as a surprise to you to learn that the philosophy department at the University of Maryland did not have provisions in its budget for paranormal case investigations. <laughs> so, uh, so I had to make a decision about how I was going to spend what little money I had to finance these things or just wait for writing on media's coattails, which I did sometimes, or waiting for grants, which I got sometimes. Um, and I figured that the best use of my time would be to try to study uh, people who are at least associated with fairly um, regular and more or less predictable or replicable um, phenomena. And that usually meant ostensible PK uh, subjects, mm -hmm. not not hauntings, not poltergeist cases that are usually much more sporadic. So that mm -hmm. was a practical decision I made. But you can be sure if, uh, um, for example, if a tree turned into Leonard Bernstein, for example, mm -hmm. I'd, mm -hmm. I'd be quick to investigate that. Uh, well, that's, I think – go ahead. I think, there's a, I think there's a flaw in my question even because uh, for, you know – for any, anything to happen, anything that's paranormal, let's say, or described as paranormal uh, to happen, there, there usually has to be someone there to observe it and report on it, right? So there's always the tenuous or tentative yes. link between the person and the, the thing being observed. So maybe there isn't any such thing as an objective uh, kind of well, phenomenon. Well, there, there is. Big Bang. The Big Bang. Yeah, nobody was around. There was nobody the there to observe that. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, you know, even if you had remote cameras waiting f for the tree to turn into a human being, um, if PK phenomena are not uh, limited by distance, uh, then no. it proves nothing. Yeah. Well, so. there's one phenomenon that um, a lot of people report, and that's the UFO phenomenon. I found it interesting that you, you kind of bracketed the... Um, a lot of the historical cases, like the ectoplasm of mediums and moving tables, um, to a period around 1850 through 1930. Uh, that was the heyday of longer. spiritualism, yes. Yeah. Um, and you, you don't hear about it so much anymore. But from, let's say, 1940 onwards, you've got the explosion in UFO, UFO sightings. 
Right. I wonder if it kind of took over. It, yeah, I wonder if in some kind of way you've got a change in manifestation. In manifestation. Of, I, I see where you're going. It's an it, it's an interesting conjecture, and fortunately, I. A friend of mine in Las Vegas is John Alexander, who's as knowledgeable about all of this as anybody on the planet. Um, but I'm not knowledgeable about it, except in a very superficial way. So um, I, I can't pretend to really have a grip on what's going on there, uh, mm. much less the abduction phenomena. But clearly something interesting is, is happening, and it may be just a, a cultural phenomenon uh, filling the gap. Mm. Um, but I mean, the physical mediumship stuff never went away. It just went more or less underground. Um, mm. and there's, there's a vibrant, if small, uh, physical mediumship community happening internationally now. I mean, Kai is not the only physical medium out there. There are lots of them, but Kai is the only one who's been willing to submit to anything like serious scientific controls. Uh, not Stuart Alexander, not David Thompson, for God's sake, uh, mm. or, uh, most of the others. So that's the the cool thing about Kai and why it's so upsetting that um, there was some trickery detected. It just complicates the whole uh, uh, issue for him. What was the... Can you say what the suspected trickery was? Uh, it had to do with some moving lights uh, during some cabinet seances. But um, there are some well-known magic tricks that do exactly what uh, Kai has been photographed doing. And, mm. uh, it's, I can actually say, but can't say why, it's indisputable that uh, he did this. Uh, but presumably it happened, or hopefully it happened, only under some understandable circumstances mm. and for a limited period of time. But because of this, uh, we can now ask questions about the mediumship as a whole, which wouldn't have been quite so urgent before. So if he was deploying these tricks at one point, that meant that the trance that he was in was not a genuine trance. He was feigning a trance. And mm. if he was feigning a trance then, then we can ask, um, well, how often has he been feigning a trance? Um, and if he found out about that one trick, it seems unlikely that he would have found out about that one trick only. You know, Even in the process, the premeditated process of searching for it, he would have come across other possibilities. And so the whole situation is somewhat murkier. But I have to add that even so, there are certain phenomena that I think are not, uh, that seem not to be touched by uh, any of these suspicions. It just makes it harder yeah. to make that case. Yeah. Uh, let, me, let me tell you a little story about a survival case or a reincarnation case. And I want you to, I'm going to make it really short. Maybe you can tell me what you think. Okay. And uh, it's about my son. Uh, when my son was three years old, he used to jump up and down every time a plane went by, and he would say, I used to fly those, I used to fly those. Wow. And as time went by, uh, he started having some, you know, some physical issues, and I, I was a little concerned about that. And along about this time, we began our channeling experiment, and finally, that what got when we you had, into it? No, that's that. That was just that was just parallel things. Okay. Uh, cause, so we'd started, and then one night after we had after a couple of years of the channeling experiment, when we'd finally gotten you know things really uh, interesting happening, 
you know, I just casually asked about my my son and his and his uh, claims to have because by this time he was a little older. He was nine by this time. And his claims to have been, you know, flying a plane and, and you know, and I asked about his physical uh, problem, which was like a, a leg and a hip thing. And uh, the, the answer came back was, was that he was, uh, yeah, he had been a pilot. He'd been a pilot in Vietnam and his, his plane was hit by a missile and his leg was torn off uh, when the, with the strike. And, of course, he died and so forth. So, that we, you know, the next obvious question is, when you're doing something like this, you want to get some data, right? You know, well, what was his name? And the, and the answer came back, George Ray. And uh, and a year was given, and I don't have all of the actual, you know, details right at, at the moment to hand. Uh, so I just put it aside and forgot about it for a while. But one of the people who was who was uh, attending our our weekly sessions decided to go and look, and he got the uh, got the list of names from the Vietnam War Memorial, you know, all the people that were had died in Vietnam. And he found a fellow on the list who was from Florida, Florida being where I lived, which was interesting, whose name was George Ray Kidd. And it's, you know, so, I mean, it was George Ray and had died in the right year and so on. Uh, so it was really kind of interesting. So at, the, at that point in time, I had this... Um, I had this uh, journalist who was kind of following me around and, and writing about stuff I was doing, and he he decided, you know, he asked me, he says, well, you know, have you found out anything about these people? You know, because we found out they lived in a in a town about 200 miles south of us. So we looked them up. Well, actually, what I did was I called the funeral home because I wanted to find out the details of how this George Ray kid had actually died. And I called, you know, around the funeral homes to see if I could find anybody who had handled the funeral. And uh, after one or two calls, I I got the right one. And the uh, the guy, the funeral director, uh, I asked him, you know, did you handle the funeral for George Ray kid? Uh, well, yeah. Why do you want to know? And I said, and I decided to just tell him the truth. You know, one of those instant decisions. Well, you know, I have the son, and he said he used to fly planes, and now there's this information that he may have been. And, and of course, there were other details from my son that he had a, a secret friend named Janie and a dog. He had the dog's name, and he described the dog, and he had he described his whole life, right? And Wait, so the I was telling describe this? No, my my son had described all this. He had oh, okay, a secret okay. friend in this other life whose name was Janie, and he had a dog named Sam, and he had, okay. you know... Uh, all of these things that he had described. So I was telling that to the funeral director, and he says, and he just, he just says, "My God, my God." Well, he said, "You couldn't know it." He says, "But I am a personal friend of the family. Yes, I handle the arrangements, and everything you have just said is absolutely true. You don't know, you know." So he was all pretty amazed. He says, right. "Do you mind if I contact uh, the sister?" So he contacted the sister, and she wanted to meet us. So, you know, I was really kind of a little off-put by this because, you know, it's one thing for a channel source to say, oh, yeah, you know, died in Vietnam, pilot, you know, blah, 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 and then you just put it aside and you forget it because, you know, this is my son. (laughs) You know know what I'm saying here? And so here are these other people who are supposedly his his family from another life, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we went down there and met them and went to the home where George Ray had grown up and my son, you know, 
uh, felt this great familiarity. We learned that the sister, that, that George Ray had a private name for the sister that only he used, nobody else knew, and that was Janie. They had the dog named Sam. I mean, everything that he had told us, you know, turned out to be correct. And then we, of course, you know, the uh, the reporter and the the photographer were with us. So we go out to the graveyard and they take a picture of my son standing there on his own grave, right? (laughs) It's just totally bizarre. And then after all of this, you know, it it was really interesting. So after all of this, uh, when the uh, journalist was getting ready to write up the story, he contacted the family again, you know, to, to send them the forms, you know, to sign for their permission, publish photographs and so forth. And they refused. And the reason they refused was because their pastor had talked to them and explained to them that this was obviously a case of possession, that my son was possessed by some demon that was convincing him that he had been George Ray in a previous life. I see. So, you know, can imagine that, that kind of thing wouldn't go down too well with some people, you know. You know, so it right. was it was really, it was really, but you know, I mean, how is that for a, a case of survival? You know, where you remember so, and I mean, this was done with witnesses, the journalist, photographer, you know, all this kind of stuff. I mean, it just, it kind of happened organically. Nobody was planning anything. Mm-hmm. And it, uh, you know, I, I mean, everything, I mean, the journalist. It's a very good day, case. It sounds great. You, yeah. You know, he, he still says to me, he says, I, I'll never forget the look so, on those wait, people's how face. So how old is your son now? How old is Jason? 31 or 30, yeah. 30, something yeah, like that. Yeah. So it's very unusual for the memories to to last that long. Well, they last. This was most man. of this came out when he was little, up you know from like three to nine or ten. Right, but you said he's still. Uh, well, he still you know he still has it, and I think the reason he still has it now, like memories and things like that, is because it was brought up and acknowledged yeah. it was discussed it was accepted and so forth but you know it's it's like it doesn't really run his life at this point i mean it's like okay that was then that this is now you know mm-hmm. it, it's like it's not a it's like not an issue for him but okay. it was it was pretty dramatic at the time oh, I and i you know and i really uh it, it, it was and the funny thing was you know we were standing there in this cemetery and looking at these graves and George Ray had been buried next to his father, whose name was Aaron with, you know, double A R O N. And I Uh came within a hair of naming my son, Aaron. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Well, I can't, I can't really confidently comment on possible living age and psi counter explanations. I'd need to think about that. So uh, Mm. that's, it's really good. It's a good case. I thought it was a pretty good case because it was yeah, uh, I do too. It, it was so spontaneous, it was so organic the way it developed and then, you know, having our channeling experiment that was going on that gave us the information. Right. That and of course all we got were the first two names. We didn't get the last name. I mean, there there's a flaw there. We asked, you know, what was his name and the answer was George Ray. But it turned out to be George Ray Kid. Mm-hmm. But everything else, you know, was uh you know, match. Still good. That's still good. Yeah, very Steven, good. Wow. Steven, yes. do you? Uh, you've obviously 
come across a lot of evidence or you know um, data that cases, that, yeah. cases or data that, that that suggests strongly uh, that you know there is life after death that psychokinesis etc are real um, but I'm just wondering if you have had any personal experiences other than that in your own life that would lead you to that, that you know I mean before you started this were you predisposed to believing in life well, after he death was, he was doing channeling experiments no. with table tipping yeah but I well mean, but let, me, let, let me explain what, and it what's going on there well, but what's some, but I, the point of the question was, was I predisposed? And the answer was no. Yeah. Uh, at the time I had my f- first table tipping experience, I was in graduate school, r- busy writing a dissertation on temporal logic and the philosophy of time. I considered myself in those days to be a kind of hard-nosed uh, materialist, not for any particularly well-thought-out reasons. It was just the kind of intellectual conceit I was cultivating at the time. And... Mm-hmm. I knew nothing about parapsychology, really. Uh, so one day, a couple friends came over. I lived in Northampton, Massachusetts, and um, my friends suggested... We had seen the only movie in town, and there wasn't much else to do, and they said, let's play this game called Table Up. And what they meant was, let's have a seance. And so for the next three hours in broad daylight, I watched my table rise in the air and spell out answers in response to questions. Um, so, I mean, that made a big impression on me, but I was smart enough to know that I couldn't really discuss it with my mentors and mm-hmm. pra- practical enough to know that my first order of business was to finish my Ph.D., get a job, get tenure. So I got my Ph.D., I published mainstream stuff in the best philosophy journals, you know, on logic and the philosophy of time and the philosophy of language. And then I got tenure, and then I remembered that this event had happened back in grad school, and if I considered myself to be an honest scholar and philosopher, I needed to come to grips with it. And I decided that if I was going to do a responsible job of that, I needed to um, become a member of the community of scholars and scientists who were actively investigating the phenomena, so I really knew what the latest theoretical and empirical developments were. And so I've done that, and I guess I'm now about as much of an insider as it's possible to be in that community. So that's how it got started. It wasn't that I was predisposed toward it. Actually, quite the contrary. So you've never had any personal experiences of your own? Not before that, at least not that I was aware of. Uh, Hmm. Not before graduate school, no. Have you seen any ghosts or you had any weird synchronicities and stuff like that 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 fit into your your own research that don't involve someone else, a subject? Um, Well, there was one. It's a complex synchronicity I described in The Gold Leaf Lady. It's a hard one to explain very quickly. Um, It had to do with a a review I was writing of a book, a a very bad book on synchronicity. Um, Let's see if I can explain this. I, I, we have to back up. I have to tell you that in, I think it was 1971, uh, a policeman in Jackson, Mississippi, stopped a car that was weaving wildly down the street, and he discovered that the driver of the car was blind and was taking directions from the car's owner, who was seated next to him but who was too drunk to drive. 
Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, now just fi- okay. file that away for a moment. Yeah, okay. And okay. Is that true? Fast- yeah. Okay. So okay. fast forward fast forward to maybe 10 or 12 years later, I'm on the coast of Maine um, where I would usually go in the summers to uh, practice piano and do some writing and just get away from stuff. And I was working on this um, book review of this very mediocre book on synchronicity. And I was thinking about it in the restaurant where I was having dinner, and I struck up a conversation with uh, the waitress. Oh, I, I should mention that I was, I was feeling um, pretty supercilious about uh, what a crappy book it was and how much smarter I was and so on, uh, and that thinking that most of the evidence for synchronicity was pretty much garbage. Um, so I struck up a conversation with the waitress and probably in an attempt to be clever, I mentioned this incident that had happened 12 years earlier in Jackson, Mississippi. And she said, oh, you mean the case in court last week? And I said, what do you mean? This happened, you know, a long time ago. And she said, no, this was, I was just in court and the case before mine was just what you described, you know, a blind driver taking directions from the uh, drunk owner of the car who was seated next to him. Now, that started me looking into the frequency of blind and yeah. drunk driver cases, and I couldn't find any others. Um, right. I found some. I found some cases of blind drivers, but they were they were quite different. Um, mm-hmm. So it looks like the universe was telling me not to be so glib about the evidence for synchronicity. Yeah, that's amazing. You know. Uh... While you were writing a review about a book on yes. synchronicity. Mm-hmm. And, and feeling very supercilious about the whole matter. Yeah. So it was a that, kind that, of humbling experience. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's... it's, it's, it's yeah. You, you can't really extract yourself from what it is you're studying. No. I'm sure you've no. had that realization yeah. over yeah. and over. Yeah, it seems to me that these kind of phenomena that defy kind of, you know, human logic or human reason, such as it is, uh, should be seen as a, as a as the universe, if you want to call that, or a reality or something beckoning, hum, beckoning humanity uh, to, to actually to evolve further and to you know, evolve in their reasoning and evolve in their, evolve in their understanding. Um, you know, that's, for me, that's a fundamental problem in the way that science approaches it. They dismiss it and they tend to kind of, uh, in, at least in that respect, in that field, they r- remain ignorant of it and don't make any progress. But these things that happen are all quite, su- a lot of them are quite subtle, leaving aside, you know, ectoplasm and uh, uh, poltergeist and things like that. But um, the experience you just, just described can feel quite compelling to an individual and um, and can can hint that there being something much more and something for people humanity to discover about the nature of reality, um, but so few mm. people people follow it and and, and and certainly science the scientific community uh, actively thwart progress in that in that area. Well, I think you hit on something important when you said that uh, you can't really separate yourself from the phenomena you're investigating and. In some ways, you know, I think modern science has, for the past several hundred years, been trying to take human beings out of the causal network as much as possible by making causation as impersonal as possible. And, you know, we talked earlier about um, the irrational um, 
behavior of people who are skeptical about this. And I think part of the reason has to do with the fear of psychic functioning. And PK or psychic kinesis illustrates it dramatically. Look at it this way. If I can move a, a pencil, uh, a millimeter by thought alone, it's only a small step conceptually from moving to that, from, from that to the idea of making somebody drop dead by thought alone. And so the very idea of any psychokinesis at all forces us to entertain seriously a kind of magical worldview that most of us associate, and usually condescendingly, only with so-called primitive cultures. It's a, it's a worldview where thoughts yeah. can have malevolent or indeed lethal consequences, and where we might have to take responsibility for a range of occurrences for which most of us would just as soon be bystanders. You know, if I have a nasty thought about somebody, mm. and that person then has an accident... There are parts of the world where that idea goes down very smoothly, but not usually in industrialized countries. Um, mm -hmm. And I think really it, it scares the hell out of a lot of people and makes them behave irrationally. I know when I saw my table rise for the first time, it scared me. It made no sense why it should scare me, but it did. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's just a shame that it does, though, because my impression from reading the cases in the, the late 19th century that were being taken seriously by William Crooks and others were that the initial fear, excitement, and jumping around calmed down to the point where people would return to seances and they'd say, they'd say to the medium, can you do that again? But this time they're mm -hmm. not anticipating, they're not afraid of what might happen. They're actually on the lookout for catching the trickery or the, you know, they're very rational about it. Wasn't it, wasn't it James Faraday? Yeah. Yeah. Wasn't it James Faraday who agreed to uh, sit in on an investigation of home and said that if he is forced to acknowledge that his his abilities are real, that home had to sign a contract in advance, that he would disavow uh, any further practice mm. of, of, of what I mean, I remember that story. But I'm not sure of the details. I forget the details. Yeah, I forget the yeah, details. Yeah, something too. like that. But but it was something like that. And, and Faraday was a staunch uh, Christian. Christian. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, so those kinds of abilities are only uh, allowed to God. And human beings, you know, are these defective creatures mm -hmm. that are not allowed to have that or claim that or mm -hmm. participate in that. The other thing is that there's a kind of naturalistic context in which um, these abilities or phenomena seem less intimidating. The seance room is one of them because it's, it's all too easy to think that um, these things can happen in the safe confines of a seance, but we don't really need to fear the possible omnipotence of thought outside the seance room. And I mean, mm. an example I've often used to illustrate what can be so unsettling about this, there's an old... Um, uh, Yiddish distinction between a shlemiel and a shlemazel. Uh, the idea is that a shlemiel is someone who spills soup on himself. A shlemazel has it spilt on him. So the idea is that a shlemazel is uh, a victim of impersonal forces or the world at large. And right. shlemazels really exist. I was actually married to a shlemazel at one point. In fact, her entire family <laughs> was, a, was a kind of lightning rod for misfortune. Um, right. But I live next door. I, I don't want to discuss that case. It could get me into trouble. But um, <laughs> yeah, I was I was going to give you a little warning there. <laughs> uh, but I lived next door to a pair of shlemazels at at one point, 
and it seemed like everything they bought was defective. Their cars were always in the shop, even though they both drove <laughs> Hondas. Uh, electronic gear would electronic gear would fail to work right out of the box. Uh, a, a very mm. solid wooden rocking chair broke within the second day of ownership with their infant child sitting on it. And my favorite example of their schlamazzleness, if that's even a word, uh, the wife bought it a poster-sized foot. She bought a poster-sized photograph of what she thought was the Golden Gate Bridge, and she had it framed and put on the living room wall. And I had to tell her, Donna, that's the Brooklyn Bridge. Now, I mean, many mm -hmm. of you or maybe your listeners may not know that that's, the idea of buying the Brooklyn Bridge is, is an old image of the mm -hmm. classic sucker, somebody who falls for somebody says, hey, right. you buy the Brooklyn Bridge. So here's yeah. a woman who both literally and figuratively bought the Brooklyn Bridge. <laughs> oh my God! Now, so how do you understand that? Is this something that they're doing to themselves in the way that we can do things to ourselves by making ourselves sick, or uh, you know, like psychosomatic ailments, or, or self-healing, or more unsavory? Uh, is this something that was being done to them? And there's no way really to decide. But that's the kind of naturalistic context in which I think these things can become particularly intimidating. Mm -hmm. Well, there's a couple of things. I don't know if you've read Gabor Mate's book, uh, When the Body Says No, where he talks yeah. about exactly what you just mentioned, where, uh, you know, the body-mind connection is so strong that uh, you can have the genes and do all the, the bad things for a certain condition and not have it if you have a proper attitude. And basically right. he, ex he examines the, uh, the attitudes of people who suffer from different illnesses, and he, and he says that... Uh, Medical people know that there is a cancer personality, there is a uh, an arthritis personality, there is a Lou Gehrig's disease personality, and so on and so forth. And he goes through that whole thing, and, and it's just really an amazing book because it tells you how much the mind does control what the body does or experiences in a very, very personal and intimate way. And I'm sure that there's a lot of people who don't want to know that either, especially a lot well, of doctors. Sure, and what a lot of people also assume is that if there is a mind-physical connection, it's safe or safer so long as it's within the body. But once we let it outside the body, and I see no reason mm -hmm. for confining it to the body, that's where it gets intimidating. You know, can we do this to somebody else? Can we, uh, do we seriously entertain the evil eye or hexing or something like that? Yeah, and there's another one that I just read about recently. This guy named Roy Sullivan who was struck seven times by lightning and survived seven times. Wow. And, I mean, th that just boggles the mind because, you know, after the first time, he started being really careful, and you'd think that that would reduce his chances of ever getting struck again. But he, in fact, got struck six more times, and he ended up committing suicide because nobody wanted to be his friend. Well, you just have to say he gets a charge out of that. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> That was just crazy. I mean, what is it about a person that could attract lightning? Yeah, well, that's a. There's mysteries. There's so many mysteries. Yeah. I mean, what, what well, is it so about symbolic? It's like God. It's like yeah. God or Thor. <laughs> yeah, mm -hmm. Thor. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, or Jupiter and his thunderbolts. Right. Yeah, it was scary. Uh, Harrison's been very patient. He's still listening in. Harrison. Good for you, Harris. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Harrison, I guess that means there's no tornado in North Carolina at the moment. We missed those. <laughs> okay, good job. Are you, uh, are you uh, Harrison, any comments or anything? You know, uh, we don't want to leave you out in the cold there. Oh, um, well, 
How much time is there left? I, I don't have a clock by me. Just a couple minutes. About ten, nine, ten minutes. Nine minutes. Okay, well, there was one other thing that I was curious about, because um, uh, I've I've read a, a bunch. I wouldn't say I've I've read an extensive amount of the, you know the literature on parapsychology, but I've read a few books and some of the introductions, like let's say Dean Radin's books or Richard Broughton. Um, he wrote a pretty good introduction to parapsychology, and reading yeah. those kind of books. Um, the the subject of like precognition and presentiment it's pre- presented in a pretty cut and dried way, and um, sorry for some background noise. I'm, I've got some cars driving by, um, but in your book, um, you you talk about precognition in a in a pretty interesting way and one that I hadn't really thought about before. Then, I was wondering if you could talk a bit about precognition and maybe the presentiment experiments and like how we should view that or interpret that. Um, like rationally. <laughs> um, well, precognition is is actually quite a complex phenomenon, it, and there are several explanatory options. One is, um, you might say, the default position. Let's call that the retrocausal or backwards causation interpretation, according to which it's a future event that has uh, causal consequences at an earlier time. So, forgetting about the presentiment experiments for a minute. Um, it's as if the person who dreams about the plane crash, uh, that dream was caused by the later plane crash. Now, there are lots of reasons, not perhaps conclusive, but interesting reasons for rejecting the idea of uh, retrocausation, uh, at least uh, rejecting the idea that it makes any sense in a psychologically explanatory framework. That's something I, I tried to argue in Limits of Influence. Um, but, if you reject the retrocausal interpretation of precognition, then what are your options? Well, the options are what Jewel Eisenberg used to call the active analysis. And the active analysis reinterprets precognition as one or more of several possibilities. One would be a kind of uh, psi-mediated inference, where the precognizer does some real-time psychic scanning of the environment and simply consciously or unconsciously draws some inferences from that. It would be like um, an engineer going onto the side of a building under construction, examining the blueprints, looking at what's been done so far, going home to take a nap, and then has a dream about the building collapsing. Um, We would say, and if the person says the building will collapse, that doesn't mean the building will collapse no matter what. It's a conditional statement, actually. It means the building will collapse unless, and then fill in the blank, unless we change the design, unless we use better materials, something like that. So in the case of apparent precognition, uh, it might be that the precognizer of the plane crash is doing some real-time psychic scanning into the thought processes of the passengers or some crew member um, or the condition of the plane and so on and just draws the obvious inference that the plane will crash. The, the advantage of that is that you don't get any apparent paradoxes. Um, so what if the person precognizes the plane crash and then you take the steps to prevent it? Um, uh, there's no paradox there because it was never uh, an all-or-nothing uh, prediction, the, the precognizer's prediction. It was like the engineer's prediction that the building will collapse. Um, the other possibility is that it's psychokinesis on the part of the precognizer, that the precognizer is bringing about the, the, the collapse of the, or the crash of the plane. Now, why would anyone do that? I hear you cry. Well, the, mm-hmm. the answer is that while most of us are very civilized on the surface, 
uh, under the surface, <laughs> most of us are pretty fucking evil. Okay. <laughs> um, I don't know of any real life saints personally, and there may be some, but that doesn't characterize the majority of us. And most of us have had negative or uh, malevolent thoughts at one time or another. Um, and so the question is, how can those malevolent thoughts express themselves in reality and not cause us to worry about ourselves? Well, the same way we often take out our anger against surrogates. You know, we might be angry at our spouse, but take it out on uh, somebody at work. It's much safer. Well, suppose the precognizer really wishes his mother were dead, um, but uh, knows that there's somebody on the plane who can serve as a surrogate for the mother and so causes the plane to crash. Um, that person, the precognizer is in the clear because he or she knew nobody uh, on the plane and so on. So... Um, that's the other psychological environment in which precog apparent precognition could express itself. And the question about the pre um, presentiment experiments is to what extent um, must we reinterpret this retrocausally or can we in interpret it as a kind of uh, psychokinesis on the part of the experimenter? It's, it's a very messy situation theoretically. And I, th mm -hmm. I don't know what to say. Hmm. I really don't. So I, I dreamed about the, uh, explosion and destruction of the Challenger space shuttle a few hours before it happened, then I got up and watched it happen. Do you think I did it? Uh, no, remember, the other, the other option is <laughs> psi-mediated inference. Yeah. It's funny, you know, you know, I mentioned those two possibilities, and people always latch on to the PK possibility. <laughs> I um, know. I, I'm, I'm jerking you. Because they want to think they're all-powerful. <clears throat> no. Uh, but well, I, but the, destroy that's, our exactly that's one the of the things that's really bugs me. Scary. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, how how can how could somebody like me know that? Well, I mean, we don't know the answer to that. We don't know why uh, looking at somebody's wristwatch helps a person, helps a psychic home in on um, things that are spatially and temporally quite distant from the wristwatch about the person. Yeah. Um, and we just know that just there are so focus you know, objects. It doesn't happen a lot. Uh, no, know, but the point is there are focus objects. We don't, know what, we don't know how great remote viewers can describe a remote location that, whose coordinates are presented uh, as binary numbers. Yeah. So we don't know what that connection is. And until we know what that connection is, we really haven't a clue what to say about um, presentiment experiments and most other experiments in parapsychology. They're connected to the information field. Uh, well, I'm glad you like that. Uh, yeah, I well, like that. Okay. Well, listen, we're just about out of time. Uh, Stephen, thanks a million for for coming on. It's been great. Uh, Thank you for having a, me. I appreciate it. And just for for our listeners, um, Stephen, you can check out Stephen's book. Put it put his name into Amazon, and there's a list of books there, and take your pick. They're all well worth a read. Immortal yeah. Remains is good. I'm reading it. Yeah. And the Goat Leaf Lady good. But there's a several others. Uh, so, yeah, and Stephen, I think you should, you're to be commended because there's so few people like you who are taking this kind of a subject seriously uh, in the scientific or in the academic community. May I have a question at the end? Yes, okay, question from Theoretical physicist. Go. What should I do to become a member of this uh, parapsychology society? society? 
uh, apply. Go on the website and see what's necessary. Um, you might also, maybe even better for you to apply for membership in the Society for Scientific Exploration. Um, the journal, I think, I might be of more direct interest to you because it deals with a whole bunch of things, lots of hypotheses in physics about, of the Einstein was wrong variety. Um, we like that. Deal, it deals with UFOs. It deals with cryptozoology. It deals with parapsychology. It deals with a whole bunch of things. So, uh, hmm. and it's a hell of a journal and a great society, and I, re I recommend it strongly. And you can I mean, uh, download and view all but the most recent journals for free online. Absolutely fantastic. You know, once you become emeritus, you can do what you want. I could do what I want before. I mean, the only way I could have been <laughs> fired would be to sexually molest the sheep in front of my students. <laughs> <laughs> okay, go for it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> okay. All right. Thank you, Stephen. Stephen, thanks again. And thanks for listening. Thank you. And thanks to our chatters. We're going to be uh, back next week with another show. Um, until then, take care of yourselves and have a good one. Bye bye. Thanks again, Stephen. Bye. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>